If you are new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors, and uh, we're going to get into the Bible right now, so why don't you guys open your Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Uh, verse 21 is what we're going to be looking at here today, and I'll tell you a little bit about what we've been doing the past few weeks and where we're going to be going. Um, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've been going through a little series that we've called Signs of Life, and really the whole idea behind this is to really unpack the ideas of what does it look like when God shows up and when God begins to do a work in our lives? What are some of the evidences or signs that Christians historically have always demonstrated or have been visible in the lives of believers? Uh, some of those we've seen over the past several weeks has been like love. We see people loving one another. Uh, community, uh, people unite and join and gather together with one another, serve one another, love one another. Um, a sense of reconciliation begins to happen. In other words, there are these transformative things that begin to take place in people's lives. Uh, we saw singing, worship as one of them. Um, today we're going to basically begin to, actually we'll fi finish today looking at uh, the subject matter of mission. Today's actually the very last one that we'll be taking a look at. Uh, next week we'll begin to, uh, we'll actually jump back into the Gospel of Mark. So if you've been with us for over eight weeks, you know that prior to this little mini-series, uh, we were going through the Gospel of Mark, and we stopped somewhere right around the time when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to pick that up back again next Sunday, and we'll be going through the Gospel of Mark all the way till uh, the time of Easter. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll finish the Gospel of Mark because that's where the story in Gospel of Mark ends, and that's where the story of Easter actually begins. It's the resurrection of Jesus, if you're like, what's he talking about? Jesus rises again from the dead. So, there you go. Um, and then after that, we'll be getting into a new series, which we'll be telling you about in a little bit. But, uh, out of curiosity, just so that you guys can at least begin to think about, as Chris had kind of shared with us, uh, the Lenten season, um, kind of a historical Christian way of uh, remembering what Jesus had done, even though it's not necessarily a biblical thing. People do this because the Bible says celebrate, you know, 40 days and memorizing, remembering what Jesus has done. Really, historically, it's been a way of Christians being able to get their hearts ready to consider uh, what the death and the resurrection of Jesus are all about. So that's what Lent traditionally is about, is a time to set aside, to maybe give up something, to consider, to pray, to really meditate upon the cross, to meditate upon the, what it means for Jesus to rise again, so on and so forth. So that's it. So out of curiosity, how many of you will actually be here for Easter this year? Raise your hand really high. You'll be here for Easter. Okay, cool. Um, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than we've done over the past several years for Easter, so I'll just be giving you guys a little bit of a public announcement right now. Uh, last several years, we've done Easter at the Expo, which is over up by Madonna. Um, this year, we're going to be doing a little bit different. We're going to be doing at the PAC, the, uh, you know, right up at Cal Poly. So if you've never been to the PAC, it's awesome. It's really a great place. And there's a couple reasons why we're doing it there is because uh, Easter actually happens to fall uh, during spring break this year, which means a lot of uh, students will be gone. And uh, the Sunday that it falls is the Sunday before students are back. And what we discovered was uh, the day following Sunday, which is obviously Monday, is a day off for Cal Poly. So I don't, we don't think a lot of students will be coming back um, just for church. Some might. Um, that'd be awesome if you guys did. So we realized we're going to be having a whole lot less people this year than we did last year. We still like the idea of getting all of our services combined and doing one big service. We feel like the pack is actually a great way to be able to do that. It's actually a little bit cheaper than the expo, and uh, it's, just, it's just cool. Have you guys ever been to the pack? Pack's awesome, so we're really excited about it. Um, so 
You don't want to miss that. In fact, if you are already thinking that you're not really sure if you're going to be there, my suggestion to you is to maybe consider uh, using this as an opportunity maybe to invite some friends or family. Uh, make it a point to be back for Easter, um, to invite some family and friends to come to be a part of the Easter celebration that we'll be having. And the reason why is because really historically in America, at least the past 50 years or so, um, most people, in fact, in America today don't go to church. But if somebody would consider going to church, all right, hypothetically, uh, they would either choose to go to church either on Christmas or Easter. Those are like the two main times, even culturally today, in this era that people will maybe consider going to church. Some of you might even be thinking, well, that's my spouse. That's when they go to church, twice a year. Um, that's exactly my point, is that... Um, those are the strategic or historic times that people will typically go to church. So use it as an opportunity, we're encouraging you, to consider, begin to pray about who are those people that maybe God would want to lay on your heart for you to invite to come to be a part of church, be a part of the church service, to hear the gospel uh, preached at a really cool location like the PAC. So that's my little advertisement for that. All right. What we're going to do right now is we're going to get into the passage. We're going to read John chapter 20, beginning at verse 21. And then uh, I'm going to pray. We'll get to work taking a look at this as soon as I read this passage. And then, uh, like I said, we'll begin to talk about the issue or the subject matter of mission. I'll explain that in a moment. And I'm going to make a distinction uh, in terms of this sign of life from missions, plural, meaning what was just announced during the announcements, and mission, meaning what the church does, something that the church is called to. And uh, the passage that I want to read is the passage that Jesus speaks about right here in John chapter 20, verse 21. Uh, to give you a little bit of the context, uh, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He comes into a room, speaks to his disciples. It's important to note whom, to whom Jesus is talking to. Uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples. The word disciples is a generic term that can be used to describe anybody who follows Jesus doesn't necessarily mean it was the apostles. In other words, the reason why this is an important statement to make is that Jesus is not talking directly to 12 chosen specific apostles to do what he's about to do. He's talking to his disciples. That means everybody who follows Jesus, anybody who's called by God, anybody who's experienced the life-giving power of Jesus through his death, resurrection, that's who Jesus is talking about. So in other words, let me put it this way into context. If you are a Christian today, if you believe you're going to heaven, if you pray the prayer, if you love Jesus, however you want to describe your Christianity and whatever type of Christian terminology you want to use, if you've experienced that, uh, Jesus is talking to you. You are one of his disciples. Therefore, you fit within sort of this umbrella category of being a disciple. So listen to what Jesus has to say to his disciples in John chapter 20, 21 verse, uh, sorry, John chapter 20 verse 21, where Jesus then speaks to his disciples. Here's what he says. When Peter saw him, he said to, he said to Jesus, um, sorry, I'm reading the wrong passage. That happens. Here we go. I'm going to read the right passage now. You ready? Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray, 
and we'll get to work. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would help us to understand what this really means to the extent that this is spread out to. God, we recognize that there are so many things in our lives, perhaps even in the Western church, God, that we get confused and it's easy for us to to lose sight of what it is that you've called us to. And God, that's why we need the regular, constant, ongoing reminder of the Holy Spirit bringing us back to the point of the gospel being brought into our lives and the work that you're constantly doing, not just in our lives, but through our lives to this whole earth, to people that are still in darkness, the way that we were once in darkness if we're Christians. God, I pray that you would just open our eyes and help us to hear, God, your invitation to join you, to be with you, to be part of what you're doing in this unbelievable process of renewing and restoring all things. So God, I pray that you'd help us, enable us, power us, strengthen us, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be taking a look at the subject of mission. Now, some of us right now might be, again, kind of thinking, great, is this sort of a mission Bible study, a mission sermon? Uh, is he going to you know, get us all whipped up to want to go to Africa or go to some third world country and help people? Um, maybe, if that's what happens. But no, that's not my goal. My goal is not to necessarily do that. My goal is to speak in general terms. In fact, I'll just be straight up honest with you. I get a lot of content. There's a lot of stuff that I can cover. And actually, I can spend weeks talking about this type of stuff. Um, I'm not able to. Um, for the sake of our time here, what I really want to try to do is I want to stick to some general basics. I'll be specific where I'm able to be specific. There's going to be a lot of things that because of brevity's sake, I'm going to have to leave out. And so if while you're hearing this, uh, you're wondering how come we didn't mention this or talk about that or explain some of these other things, uh, it's because of time. Um, so I'm, I want to try to be as specific as I can in the areas that I can be specific in general in terms of the bigger, broader picture that I'm hoping to paint for us to really understand. Again, my main point is really emphasize that one of the signs of life that you've met Jesus, that you've been transformed by the gospel, is that you live, you understand what it means to live on mission. Have a specific purpose for your life, in your life, as a part of a family, a part of a new community that Jesus himself is creating. So what I want to do is I want to begin to really try to unpack that and understand that. But first, um, I want to really just emphasize that in reality, every human being has something that they're passionate about. I mean, there's all of us in here. I mean, if we were to go around the room and sort of take a little bit of a survey and ask you, what are the things that you're really passionate about? Some of you are going to be like, you're passionate about Pinterest. You're like really excited about it. You read it all the time. You're always posting stuff. You're just spending lots of of inordinate amount of time on Pinterest, all right? Some of you are like really into, I don't know, hairdos or surfing or football or your job or recycling or being a vegetarian or, you know, I mean, go down the list or really excited about, you know, the, the little gadgets or the hobbies that you have on the side or mountain biking or running or, you know, triathlons or whatever. I mean, all of us have something some of you are like, I don't know why this is coming to my mind. Some of you are like really into computers. You're like into like having big graphics cards. But here's my point. All of us in this room have something that really drives us. We're really passionate about. Um, to the point, to the degree that for the, there, there's a tendency for us to want to share that enjoyment that we found with this particular thing with everybody. We don't have a problem spending money on that thing. We don't have a problem 
uh, spending time and energy proclaiming, talking about, communicating it. In fact, there might even be people that get tired of hearing us talk about it, but it's like, we don't really care because we're really deeply committed to our particular passion. Now, I was going to show you guys some slides. I didn't get a chance to actually put them on here this morning. Uh, I was going to play a little game with you guys based upon some slides I was going to show you, and the game was going to be guess what mission these guys are all about. And I can just tell you what the slides are. The first slide was a picture of Bono in, I don't know, somewhere in Africa. And it was, you know, his one campaign. And Bono's mission, chief mission, I mean, obviously he's a musician, and he plays good music, I think. And the reality is, is that aside from that, he is very dedicated, very passionate about this mission that he has in life called One. And the whole goal of it is to end extreme poverty. Uh, another slide I was going to show you is a picture of Michelle Obama in front of the White House doing jumping jacks with an army of children behind her. All right? And, and in other words, she knows she's the first lady, but she has a mission. Her mission is to, ex to end extreme obesity in kids and to help kids to be trained and think about how to work out and how to live lives that they can take some control and management of their own uh, weight and so on and so forth and health, diet. Another picture I was going to show was a picture of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And within the pictures and the signs that these guys were holding up, basically, uh, one of the things you begin to discover is that these guys are on the mission, or at least some are on the mission within that. Some are just kind of hanging out, I guess, um, joining the crowds. Um, but those that are deeply committed to the mission are really committed to this mission of ending extreme financial corruption. So here's my point. Um, when we talk about mission... It's not fair to simply look at Christians and be like, ah, we've got to talk about mission again. Everybody's on a mission. Everybody has some sort of a mission. Um, we don't really have a problem with Bono promoting his mission. We don't really have a problem. We're not like, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm sick and tired of hearing Michelle Obama talk about doing, like, push-ups. Ridiculous, right? right? Maybe you get that way, but the point of the matter is, is we're okay with that for the most part. So the funny thing is, though, when we start talking about the church and the mission of the church, People get a little bit kind of like, oh, are we really going to talk about that? Is this going to go that direction? Is he going to ask me for money? Uh, is he going to ask me to raise my hand to see about going on a missions trip? Um, and here's really what I want to emphasize, is that all people have this tendency, all of us in this room have something we're passionate about that drives us. Some of us go to those extremes in which we are very passionate about it, where we join some mission to be able to be part of that team to do that. What I'm saying is the church is no different than that. What I am suggesting, though, is that the mission that the church has is profoundly life-changing and profoundly longer-lasting and more sustainable than anything because Jesus has promised his power and his presence to be with his people as they join him on this mission. So with that being said, I want to take a look at three things this morning. The first of which is we're going to see that this mission that we're talking about is really for the whole church. Secondly, we'll take a look at it's with the whole gospel. Thirdly, that it's to the whole world. In other words, it's for the whole church, with the whole gospel, to the whole world. So let's take a look at the first thing. It's for the whole church. There's a guy um, who died in the early 90s uh, by the name of Leslie Newbig, and I'm going to read you a quote from him. Uh, he's actually written a lot about the subject matter of the mission of the church, and I'll come back to him more in just a second here. Uh, he actually was a missionary for many years, and uh, he had written a lot about missionary endeavors in third world countries, but also then in first world countries. He was originally from the UK. And what he began to discover is not so much that the church has a mission, per se, but that God has a church for the mission. 
In other words, when we talk about mission, we're not talking about the church sort of creating its own unique little department for specific things that it's supposed to do. We're talking really about, and he was a guy that was able to kind of pioneer this thought, that really at the end of the day, mission begins with God. God is a missionary God. The whole summary of the Bible can actually be described in mission terms. If you want to get theological, missiological terms. It's a big word, but it's okay. We can all learn it. It's the idea of studying the mission of the church. And when we're talking about the mission of the church, what we're really talking about is the mission of God and how God uses the church, how God calls the church, how God redeems sinful people, rescues them, and then calls them to join with him to be part of this mission of a bigger, broader thing. We'll talk more about that in a second. But here's what Leslie Newbegin says. She says, the church is sent into the world to continue that which Jesus came to do. Not in a salvation type sense, but in the way in which Jesus helped people, loved people, preached the gospel. And here's what he says. The church is sent into the world to continue that which Jesus came to do in the power of the same spirit, reconciling people to God. We saw this whole subject of reconciliation a couple weeks ago. Then he goes on to say the way Jesus chose to do this work of redemption was to choose a community, that's the church, that would make it known by embodying it in its life, expressing it in its deeds, and announcing it in its words. In other words, the church has something to speak, to communicate, to preach. Also, the church has something to do. It's actions. Jesus even describes, you know, anyone that comes to me, you know, bring in a cup of cold water. It's the idea of serving people with our hands, demonstrating kind acts, good works. The Bible describes that. We're not saved by our good works. Amen? We know that. But those that are saved are saved to good works. To do what God does. What type of works does God do? Good works. Right? If you're wondering. Let's see. Is a trick question? No. Good works. God only does good works. Bad works? Good works. I'm not sure. Good works. That's what God does. When God saves people, redeems them, he saves them to do good works. This is what really Leslie Newbegin is describing. Is that the church happens to be God's strategy. Now what we need to do real quick was we need to do a little bit of recalibration. Here's what I mean. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the term mission drift? Have you ever heard of that term? All right, I'll tell you what it means. Um, every organization, whether it's Christian, non-Christian, secular, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Every organization has the propensity to get into second generation, third generation, meaning let's say the founder started a particular good you know, work in terms of helping the poor in inner cities, all right? Let's say said founder, you know, after 40 years of doing his ministry, or doing, I should say doing his nonprofit org, he dies, but he gives his nonprofit over to a board of trustees. You guys follow me so far? Okay, let's say the board of trustees is not the owner. He's not the founder. But the board of trustees' job is to take care of the money. But let's say that organization keeps moving forward, doing the business of what the organization was done, but it doesn't have the heart in which the organization was started by the founder. What you end up having is an organization that might get a lot of infighting over how we spend the money, but there's not a lot of activity going on with how that organization started in the beginning. In other words, the mission originally from this nonprofit drifted away from its original intention. Does that make sense? That happens all the time, but it also happens within the church. There's a tendency for the church to once started out in the spirit, God's doing something amazing, it's awesome, God's transforming people's lives the work of the spirit is powerful people's hearts and lives are being redeemed and transformed and changed and 
Marriages are coming back together again. Dudes are being set free from porn. People are being set free from, you know, financial debt and problems and things like that. Jesus is saving people. But what can happen is that any organization can become sort of about the organization. About the organization. And at the end, 40 years down the road, several years down the road even, it can begin to drift away from what it originally started out as. It's called mission drift. The same reality can happen within the church. And I would basically suggest that has happened. And it always happens. It continues to happen. Um, Because we're all redeemed sinners. Even the best of Christians can find this happen. There's some safeguards that we can establish to make sure that it doesn't happen, but the point of the matter is, unless we're careful, unless we're intentional, it will happen to us. It's easy for us to become more concerned about what type of chairs do we sit on, how comfortable we are, rather than concerned about people that don't know Jesus, being brought into knowing Jesus, people that aren't walking with Jesus, to be discipled, become full-fledged followers of Jesus. It's very easy for us to be concerned about, you know, the length of the sermon as opposed to the content of the sermon. And the point is, is that all of these things are evidence. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that one of the reasons why churches oftentimes fold, split, break apart, destroy, disintegrate, uh, why there's strife, why people argue over lots of things, and why there's a lot of uh, hypocrisy is because of mission drift. They've lost sight. They've lost focus of the call of Jesus, the commissioning of Jesus to be a part of his kingdom building process and be a part of his kingdom building work. They become more focused upon padding a club, a group of people that are comfortable around themselves. It's one of the reasons I'll even add why some of us might even get bored with Jesus. This whole thing, you might still be going to church even after 30 years of being a Christian and yet the reality is, is you might be like, ah, it's a little bit boring. I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, you might be like, I can think of 20 other things I'd rather be doing right now. Unless this guy yell at me. Um, the reality is, is we might not want to even be a part of something because what happened is we've lost sight of the mission. It happens to all of us. It can happen in any organization. And we need to always set up safeguards to realize how and why these types of things can happen. So we need to recalibrate things periodically. I want to go through three things. I can spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm not. I'll just give you three things that I think we need to recalibrate. We've got to address these things head on. Next slide is this. So at the church, start off by just basically saying what needs to be recalibrated and then talk about the reality of what needs to really happen. The church is the place where I get my needs met. True or false? To some degree, it's true. But is that the sum total of what the church is all about? Let me, let me, let me unpack this a little bit further. When I talk about church... When I'm using the word church, I'm not talking about three things. First of all, I'm not talking about a building. It's easy, very easy in our vocabulary to be like, oh, what's that building right there? Oh, that's my church. Can you do me a favor? Don't do that. I mean, I, honestly, I, I really mean that. I, I, I do that with my own family. I do that with my kids. When we're driving by here, and they're like, oh, daddy, there's the church building, or there's a the church. I'm like, that's actually the church building. That's not the church. The church is a living, breathing organism. Unless you see people there in the parking lot, then don't call it ch- the church. It's just a building, brick and mortar. There's nothing holy, sacred, special, unique about this place. What makes it holy, unique, special, and beautiful are you guys. That's the church. It's not a building. I'm not talking about a building. Secondly, I'm not talking about a service. The church is not an event. And we can sometimes call it church service. We get together, church service, church event. 
No, those are actually events that the church gathers at or goes to. It's a service that the church attends. So you might think I'm kind of nitpicking this, but what I'm really trying to say is that we've got to be careful because otherwise what can happen, these ways or the ways that we oftentimes become loose with describing these things can lead to sort of drift. We begin to think of a building as a church. We begin to think of doing this as church. Or the third thing, what I'm not talking about is it's not a building, it's not a service. Thirdly, it's not an organization. It's easy to oftentimes assume that the church is an organization of, you know, leaders and layers of leadership and elders and deacons and boards and things of that nature. And you've got to go through this process within the church to get things taken care of. And that's an organization. Organization is necessary to take care of something that's living. But at the end of the day, when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about really, in an organic term, uh, an organism. Something that's alive, something that Jesus has birthed, something that Jesus uh, inhabits the praises of these people. In other words, I'm talking about if you are a believer in Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of his redeemed family, you're the church. But then also, too, the church meets up on top of a hill at Mountain Brook, and the church also meets downtown at Grace and other places where people are gathered who love Jesus. The church is the body of Christ in a very general type of a sense. It's living. Church does need organization. Um, so there are layers of organization that are developed. The church does oftentimes need times to gather and might even have events, and that's fine. The church does need perhaps a place to meet, whether it's under a tree, you know, in a catacomb, under a bridge, or in brick and mortar, or in an old warehouse. We just, we just, it just so happens to be this is the place that we hang out at because no one would come if we did it downtown at a park because it's just really too cold because we're wimps, right? It's too cold. 50 degrees out, it's like... Way too cold. i got to wear two tank tops today. This is not good. California weather. So the point of the matter is that we, we realize at the end of the day, when I'm talking about the church, the church is not any of those things. The church is an organism that Jesus has birthed. So here's my point. The church is a place that I go to get my needs met. So to some degree, there is a truth to that. But if we just think of going to hang out with a bunch of other people as they're the ones that are going to solely take care of me all the time, that's it without ever viewing it bigger than that, then what happens is that we basically become straitjacketed within sort of the consumerism of our culture. Here's what happens, and here's what I oftentimes see taking place. Consumerism consumes us, and we become sort of like connoisseurs of church. We're like, I'll sample this church over here because they've got you know, good Bible studies. Sample this church over here because the music's nice, and sample this church over here, these people over here because people are nicer over there, or, and what happens is we become connoisseurs. And the things that we don't like over here, we criticize, judge, become frustrated with. And what happens is rather than viewing the church uh, really as God's strategy to meet the needs of the world, we just basically view it as a place to go get my needs met. So that is a myth that needs to be undone. That is something that needs to be recalibrated. The second thing that needs to be recalibrated is that we send people on missions. All right? But in reality, we're all set on mission. Now, I want to make a distinction here, because when I talk about missions with an S at the end, I am talking about like what we talked about earlier when Christine shared the announcements. We do have people in this church who have come through this church, been raised up in this church, saved in this church, trained by this church, and then we send them out because they had a unique call upon their life or a passion in their heart to want to go someplace. Brazil, New Zealand, Hungary, wherever. And we confirmed that call, and we're like, great, we want to help you. And because 
if you leave Southern California, you want to go live in New Zealand, like New Zealand is not looking for people from, you know, Central California to take jobs away from New Zealanders. So they can't go and get a job. So we try to support them. We try to help them get some money to raise support, to be a people that can help at least support them, send them out until they're able to get things functioning and going over there where they can plant a church. Some places that we send people, they'll never be able to raise up enough money amongst the people, among the indigenous crowd of people they're trying to reach. Um, and so we just continue to support them because we love them. We believe in what they're doing. But what I'm talking about, not so much in terms of a special class of people, we call missionaries, and then we send them out on missions. We do that, but the problem with that terminology is here's what it does. It creates in our minds sort of this us and them mentality. Because some of us might be here, you might be like, you know, I'm never going to go on the mission field. My job, one of these days, I'm going to go out and be like, you know, work for the city. So I'll never go to Africa. I don't have a desire to go to Africa. I don't want to go be a missionary. So therefore, I'm sort of excluded from that group of people that are going and living the mission of God. So I want to say that's wrong. That needs to be recalibrated. All of us are called as disciples, if you're a disciple, to be on, to join with the mission that Jesus calls us to. For some of you, it might be to go to a different country, cross-culture. We want to train you. We want to help you. That's why we do the thing that we're doing starting tonight. But the rest of us were called, wherever we're at, to be on mission, to join Jesus on the mission that he's already established and started, to be with him, to be where he's at, to join him for the purpose of restoring this broken world by bringing people to Jesus, the Savior, the King. Okay, third thing that needs to be recalibrated is missions is a program in some churches. But in reality, mission is the primary calling of the church. In some ways, it's kind of like point number two. But the reality is, there's a tendency, like I said, to just simply think of missions as a department in the church. But again, in reality, God has called his whole church to join with him to be on mission. To join with him. To do. To participate with what he's already doing in this world. So the second thing I want to jump into, begin to look at, is really the fact that missions is for the whole world, or mission is for the whole world. The whole world. God has a purpose for this. Uh, sorry, go back. Mission is actually for the whole gospel. So I want to first of all talk about the message that we have to communicate, and we'll talk about the world, the whole world. So the gospel is what we're given. The gospel is what the New Testament promotes, talks about. The gospel basically means good news. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the storyline of the gospel and talk a little bit about what this whole thing is all about. So in short, I want to give you kind of a brief synopsis of the entire Bible. I told you I had a lot of content, and I got to keep it short and as concise as I can. So here we go. Basically, in the very beginning, what we notice is that God creates all things, and God makes this pronouncement over all things, and he says, it's all good. And everything's great, everything's paradise, everything is rhythmic, everything's glorious until you get to chapter 3. God created mankind in his own image, and yet God, uh, or through the creation, God, after creating Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve basically make a choice, a decision to usurp the authority of God to do what they want to do. And as a result, they have basically uh, fallen into what we describe as sin. They've fallen into sin. As a result of that, all of this rhythmic beauty that we call this earth that God declared good over is now broken. It's fractured. It's not good anymore. It's destroyed. It's corrupted. It's sick. It has a disease. All creation has fallen prey to this. Mankind is at the forefront of all of this. 
And yet what God does in chapter 3 is something absolutely amazing. We're told that God enters into the garden, and he calls out to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? And what we see in chapter 3 is really the first actions of what scholars have described as missio dei, which is the Latin way of basically saying the mission of God. God becomes a missionary seeking out Adam and the broken relationship that's happened. God enters into the garden. God enters back into this fractured relationship. God initiates. It's not Adam looking for God. Adam's running from God. God's running for Adam. And in that action, in that activity, we see the mission of God. God is going after Adam, not as an arresting police officer. Right? Not as an angry general. Not as a king who's out to enact vengeance. But as a father who's heartbroken for the purpose of restoring that which was lost. So God speaks to Adam and Eve. And he basically makes his promise. He says, through your seed, through your lineage, there will be a child that will rise up and will crush the head of the serpent that deceived you. And conversely, the serpent will bite the ankle of my servant, the one, the seed that will come from you. In other words, there will be an exchange of blows. One will be crushed, the serpent. One will be mortally wounded. And what God basically does from that point forward, a, hundred, a few hundred years later, God calls a man by the name of Abram. Abraham was an idol-worshipping pagan who lived in the area of modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. God calls him out. But God calls Abraham with a mission. God calls Abram says, follow me. And I will bless you. I will make you a nation. Meaning you're going to have lots of kids. Your kids are going to have lots of kids. And those kids are going to form a nation. That nation will be so powerful and so great because it will have my blessing all over it. But God's whole point is that you will be a blessing. I will bless you so that you then in turn will be a blessing. Just to the Jewish people? Just to a select group of people that are part of that tribe of Abraham? No. To the whole world, God says. Abraham, you will be a blessing. Your nation will be a blessing to the entire world. So God's promise to Abraham in pursuing Abraham was that he would be blessed so that in being blessed, he would be a blessing. Now, we know the rest of the storyline of the Bible throughout the Old Testament. We see stories from like the book of Judges and Chronicles and First and Second Samuel all the way through the prophets. We see the storyline of the people of Israel not doing what God had called them to do. In other words, National Israel, the nation of Israel, was called by God to function as a blessed nation for the purpose of being a blessing to the world around them. And so what had happened was rather than Israel functioning, uh, receiving the blessing of God in order to be a blessing to the world around them, Israel basically absorbed the blessing, and rather than using the blessing as a means to fuel their fight against darkness in the world, to push the darkness back in the world, what happened was the exact opposite. Rather than pushing back the darkness by way of God's blessing, by way of God's grace, Israel absorbed the blessing of God, swallowed it, terminated upon themselves, became rich, fat upon themselves, became consumers of themselves, and as a result, rather than pushing back the darkness, they were consumed by their darkness. Hence the prophets, they rise up, constantly sharing the message, return back to God, return back to the blessing that God has promised to you, and then you will be a blessing. But 
The secondary element of the message was that if you don't turn back to God, what will happen is the darkness will continue to swallow you, and within that darkness will come a disintegration, a breaking down of yourselves, of your nation, and of the people around you. You, rather than becoming a part of the solution, you will become a part of the problem. And the storyline continues always all the way up into the beginning of the New Testament where we're told that Jesus comes in the lineage of David, who comes in the lineage of Abraham, who comes from the lineage of Adam. And we see in Jesus' life over and over again, Jesus doing good things. What's Jesus doing? He's always doing what? Good works. Where does that phrase come from? It comes from Genesis 1. Because everything God does is good. Everything Jesus does is good. In other words, Jesus does good works. What's Jesus trying to communicate by his good deeds? What he's basically saying is that what's happened is that on planet Earth is the dawn of a new creation. God is picking up where Adam left off, where Israel failed in a new humanity. Jesus is doing for Israel what Israel failed to do, but the double blessing is not just Jesus doing for Israel what Israel failed to do, but Jesus also absorbing what Israel deserved to absorb. Because on the cross, the darkness that destroyed and disintegrated Israel, on the cross we see that very same darkness destroying, disintegrating Jesus. Jesus absorbed the judgment Israel deserved and yet lived the life that Israel should have. And in that, Jesus oftentimes over and over again describes to his followers, he says, I'm the light of the world. What's he describing? Why is he saying that? What he's saying is that I am doing in me a new work what Israel should have done. Here's the most amazing thing, is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he gave birth to a new family. We call these Christians. We call this the church. For what purpose? Just to simply only enjoy redemption? Look, don't get me wrong. Redemption is absolutely amazing. We sleep because of redemption. Knowing that we're saved is the greatest blessing of all. But if all we do is look at the fact that we're redeemed and it stops there, then we're really no different than Israel celebrating the fact that they got freed from Egypt and stopping there. The point of redemption is to bring us into the plan of restoration. To be a part of God's functioning, blessing upon this planet. In other words, to put it this way, just as Israel was blessed to be a blessing, so the church is blessed to be a blessing. Just as Israel was given grace to show grace, given forgiveness to show forgiveness, so this church, Jesus' new redeemed people, are shown grace to show grace, shown forgiveness to show forgiveness. But what happens if we just simply terminate everything upon ourselves and we forget the fact that God has called us to be a blessing in this world? We've lost our place in the storyline. That's what's happened. We, we become bored with God, maybe even. Church. We fail to even see the significance of, of like what we're doing here. This is kind of like a, a military strategy meeting to remind ourselves of our orders from God, from the commission from God to refresh our hearts, to go back out into the world to lovingly serve the way that Jesus lovingly served his church. This is what, the, this is what it's all about. But if you lose sight of the plot line, that's where oftentimes boredom arises. 
That's where we sort of have the sense of disconnect. Like, what's church all about? Seems like church is just about singing or church is about people giving money. Or church is just, no, you've lost sight of the plot line, the storyline. That's what's happened. But Jesus wants to restore that within his church so that we begin to understand afresh and anew what Jesus is ultimately doing. Look, when Jesus rose again from the dead, when Jesus allowed death to consume him and darkness to consume him, ultimately conquering that, his resurrection from the dead was a public statement that not even death, as powerful of a foe it is to us, can stop his kingdom work. And through this, Jesus is basically saying, I'm raising up a new humanity. If you are in me, death can't stop you. If you are in me, you're part of this redeemed family of people. If you're part of me, you're part of the restoration of all things. Me working through you to bring life and hope to this world that's broken, that's hopeless, that's in darkness. The final thing I want to finish on is this really issue of ultimately being to the whole world. Now, the reality is, as I mentioned earlier, um, we need to kind of distinguish a little bit between missions, missionaries, and living on mission. The reason why I think it's important is because when I describe missions or someone being a missionary, um, I'm oftentimes describing someone that might feel a unique call to go to another country, and that's great, supported. But at the end of the day, we also live in a country filled with darkness. We live in a culture. We live in an area. We live in a county, which darkness is still prevalent everywhere we look. And so to somehow look at America and be like, ah, America's evangelized, it's Christian, whatever, the reality is, is it's not. And I'd make an argument saying it never really even was, but that's a whole other subject matter. But the point of the matter is that what I really want to emphasize is that God sends us out whether it be to another country, another nation, or to go work in the cubicle. If you're a mom and like, all I do is I just watch three kids and change diapers and go to the park, that's your mission field for now. Like hanging out with a bunch of other grumpy moms. Like that becomes a mission field. To like breathe life, to show people life. This is what God calls us to. This is the mission field I'm talking about. It's not necessarily so much that we go out and we have to somehow memorize the four spiritual laws and communicate it. It means doing life amongst people in this world. That with an intentionality that we see ourselves sent by God as God sent Jesus. So we are sent by God. Like I said, for some, it might mean to go to the uttermost parts of the world. For some, it might be to go to any of your cul-de-sac. Bring a meal to someone that's going through a hard time in the name of Jesus. To go to a next-door neighbor that's just, you know, having a rough time. Offering to watch their kids. Offering to feed their dog while they're on vacation. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, we can go on for hours talking about this type of stuff, but the point of the matter is the intentionality Kindness, showing kindness, showing the grace, showing love, forgiveness, releasing debts, the way that God did all that to you. So the real issue is like, finally, to the whole world. I, I want to read a quote. I, I emphasize, really, the guy that I talked about earlier, I should say, the guy, Leslie Newbegin. He was a missionary, as I mentioned, and he left uh, the UK prior to World War II. And you, you know, prior to World War II, was a very different place than when he returned. He went to India for 40 years. He came back from India in around 1972. 
And when he came back to the UK from India, he realized that the UK had radically changed. I mean, this is like, you know, the 70s, um, hippie movement, all sorts of things that were just going on, free love, whatnot, that were taking place in England. Just in a lot of ways, it was taking place here. And begin to realize is that the England that he left was a radically different England than when he came back to. The England that he left, maybe at least he had thought in that time that it was sort of a missionary sending place. It was kind of like a Christian nation sending out people to go Christianize the world. And again, there's a lot of argument that maybe what was really going on was sort of imperialism, people going out. And that did happen, no doubt, but there's arguments that can be made that really Christianity going out kind of as an imperialist movement in some ways is kind of a... It's a silly argument because at the end of the day, a lot of the people that were going out and paralyzing various parts around the world actually hated the Christians because when Christians followed along, uh, let's say areas where imperialism was taking place and they were mistreating the locals and the natives, Christians actually came along and they were like giving value and respect and dignity to the people. And that brings a sense of freedom. And so that that doesn't really work very good if you're trying to throw people down on slave labor and uh, you got Christians coming along and saying, you're more valuable than, you know, a quarter a day, you know, in that sense. And what happens is that in reality, when he came back to England, he began to realize that England needed to be evangelized. It didn't know Jesus. And he began to realize that because of this, uh, he needed to view England a different way, to realize that there are cultural idols in England that needed to be conquered. And so here's my point, is that when we look at the idea, one of the ways in which we can view this is that if we're to be the whole church understanding the whole of the gospel, and constantly reminding ourselves over and over again of the whole gospel, what Jesus has done for us, the power that he's called us to, what he's called us to be a part of, constant, daily. It's not just like, I remind myself of this 10 years ago. This is a daily thing. It's why we even say we need to be in community with each other. It's why we have community groups to gather, to remind ourselves, so that there's not mission drift, so that we go back to the plot line. We go back to the narrative. We go back to the story of God. The mission of God. We need this regularly, otherwise we lose sight of the plot line. So the point of the matter is, the whole of the world requires us to be as good missionaries, to be aware of the world. Let me put it this way. Every single culture, if I can put it this way, has a cultural narrative, a storyline, that every culture in and of itself in this world believes that if you have certain things, life will be better. I mean, some storylines and some cultures are very, say, uh, male-doministic. And the plot line or the storyline of some of those cultures might be, you know, to be a male, to have a lot of power, puts you in authority and control, and that's the uppermost, greatest thing that you can possibly be, is to be strong and be a male and have sons. And if you have a daughter, then that's not part of the storyline. That's signs of weakness. So women are disposable. Children are disposable, unless it's a boy. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, per se, in America, I think of, for example, in America, one of the plot lines that I think we have a tendency to kind of be aware of. Let me just say this as well. It's very difficult oftentimes to even identify some of the cultural uh, ideas and idols that every culture has. Uh, Leslie Newbegin has this great quote from a Chinese proverb. He says this, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish, right? Uh, it's, like, it's, it's very difficult oftentimes to identify certain cultural idols that we buy into, but I think one that might be easy to identify because it basically got exposed as a fraud about four years ago. The whole American dream that says every American has their right, they're entitled to buy a house. And some have actually bought that plot line being like, oh, that's what we need to do. That's life. It's the sum total of life. My life is not complete. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. 
until I get a you know, family and I have a house. Once I have a house that I'm entitled to, little parenthetical statement, then I'm complete, then I'm happy. And obviously that whole thing got blown up a few years ago when the whole housing market went down. If you own a house today, you're like, ah, I'm stuck with something that actually lost a quarter of its value. So here's my point, is that there's a tendency to oftentimes, as a Christian, because a Christian is one who has a storyline, a plotline, a narrative. And the narrative that God gives to us is that all of us, though we have fallen far from the glory of God, we have value simply because we are made in his image. And God is on a mission to redeem and restore that which is broken. Regardless of how much money you have, regardless of what you look like, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your education, regardless of your status, third world, first class, regardless of who you are, regardless of anything, the storyline of God is that he's come to redeem and rescue and restore all who are lost. And ultimately he calls us, sets us free from our own sinfulness, to join him, to partner with him, to be a part of that process. And the message that we get to announce to all, regardless of skin color, regardless of education type, regardless of whatever, is that all are valuable, that God loves, that God has paid a price that we deserve to pay, and that the king has come to not bring judgment upon you, but that he has borne your judgment for you, we get to announce that, not only by word, but by deed, the way that we act, the way that we treat people, that when we forgive someone, that's a powerful message of the forgiveness that you've received. When we show mercy to someone that otherwise should not deserve mercy, we're pulling back the screen a little bit and demonstrating the storyline that we've, sh- we've been shown mercy that we didn't deserve. When we love someone that's unlovely, we're basically pulling back the veil. We're giving a trailer of things to come, showing that we were unlovely, and yet God loved us. God calls us to be a part of this mission. This is the mission he calls us to be a part of. But it involves being able to identify those cultural idols that can oftentimes destroy us, or be superimposed over our lifestyles and become a part of us that really basically hinder or bring about mission drift. The final thing that I want to finish with is this thought, that if indeed, if it's true that through Jesus' death, that Jesus actually dealt this decisive death blow upon sin, judgment, and death, if it's true that through Jesus' death that happened, if it's true that through Jesus' resurrection, the power of a renewed creation, of which he was the first fruits of, if it's true that through his resurrection, a whole new creation was brought into being that this world has never seen before, called the church. Resurrected people who were once dead in trespasses and sins, they've been given grace to be raised up from their death, given new life. It's a sign of life. If this is true, and what Jesus is ultimately doing, that, and if it's finally true, that the, a restored creation is God's plan and intention for all of history. In other words, if where planet Earth is going is cosmic restoration, that's what the book of Revelation tells us, if that's true, 
then mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, love upon love, God has invited you to be part of that project. That's amazing. That the forgiveness you've been given, that you now get to show, is all part of that life-giving process. The power that's at work, that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in you, bringing you to life, living out the life of the kingdom to come now. So your life has the power of being this trailer of a feature presentation yet to come. So in other words, when people look at you, they have this opportunity of seeing what it looks like to live in God's forgiveness. They have a picture of seeing what it looks like to love people that are unlovely. They have this picture of what it looks like to forgive people that have wounded and hurt. In you, this living epistle, this living, breathing book, they have this opportunity of seeing this picture of the gospel alive, breathing, at work, in you, through you. God calls you. That is what it means to be on mission. If I were to stop right now and be like, so guys, go be good missionaries, do it all, do the best you can. Some of us are going to walk out of here and be like, ah, that sounds rad, really cool. I don't know if I can do it. And you feel really challenge and trouble and it might be difficult to even think about that because in some ways you may look at your life and wonder how it even applies in the context where you're at how it applies you know like on a job site where you're dealing with a bunch of like you know construction workers that have got nasty mouths or tell dirty jokes or whatever you're like how do I you know shine brightly as a light there or how do I you know shine brightly as a light wherever I'm at it's got to be worked out for every one of us in different ways and that's where you need the power of the Spirit to help you. It's why you need the beauty of the community of saints gathered around you to pray for you, to help you constantly. Look, at the end of the day, if I give you guys a list that just follow these things, some of you be like, I'm going to do it. But at the end of the day, God doesn't just give us a list and say follow these things and knock them off one by one. But what God does is he says, I'm going to bring you into life and I'm going to send you out into death and darkness. And it's going to be challenging. It will be hard. There'll be trials, there'll be tribulation, there'll be pressures that you can't even begin to imagine. In fact, it's so bad, it can be so bad, that as they killed me, Jesus would say, they might even kill you. But Jesus says, I've given you my Holy Spirit. So here's the beauty. Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. Jesus sends the Spirit into the church and then to the church, Jesus sends into the world. All of us are missionaries. All of us are called to live this way. Some of you might go to a different country. Some of you might just go to a cubicle. Some of you will go into slums in dark places. Some of you will go into dark places called fraternity houses. All of us are called on mission. Some of us will hear this and think the message of Jesus and the gospel, don't buy it. And you will continue on a path dealing with your own sense of insecurities and destruction with nothing to overcome it except your own self-willpower. At some point, you will face the greatest enemy that you will ever face and you will lose. It's called death. Everyone dies. You might live a life of self-control and combat certain personality problems, character flaws, but to push Jesus aside will leave you powerless at the point of death. 
Some of you are Christians. You've met Jesus. Death won't overcome you. Death will be a door. It will lead you into God's future kingdom and all that entails and the beauty of that. But some as Christians might choose to continue to live a life superimposing the morales, the storyline, the plotline of this culture over the plotline of the renewed life that they've been given by Jesus. And you will live a life full of confusion. You will feel schizophrenic. You'll be frustrated. Because what's happened is that you have chosen through maybe confusion or through just hard-heartedness to try to superimpose and bring together two storylines that are completely opposite with one another. And you'll be frustrated. And you won't enter into the joy that Jesus calls you to have and the power that he wants for you to have. And your life will be lived in a lot of ways like C.S. Lewis describes in that little making mud pies illusion where he says, you'd be like a little child who's just kind of content making mud pies because he can't even envision what it's like to have a holiday at sea. And the point that he's making there is that we're far too easily satisfied. You'll be too easily satisfied and your joy will be a shallow joy. But if we understand the brevity, the depth, the power, the magnitude of what Jesus calls us to, then what we have been brought into is something so mind-boggling, so unbelievable that God would call once former, broken, destroyed, illegitimate, orphaned, sinful people to not only be brought into his family, but to be called to be part of his mission, to bring restoration and redemption until the day that Jesus comes again. That's amazing. And that's something that Jesus promises to give us, our, give us the strength that we need through his power of his spirit. I want to invite you into that. What I want to do right now is, you know, we can pray for our missionaries. We do that a lot. We pray for sometimes children's ministry people that go out and help out children's ministry people. But you know, one time it kind of dawned on me, like, some of you guys might help out in children's ministry or different parts of the church, you know, once a Sunday. But the rest of your week, you know, you might be a teacher, you know, shuffling around, taking care of 25 kids every single day, and no one's ever prayed for you. In other words, you're a missionary every single day, five days of the week, dealing with crazy kids that maybe don't know Jesus. Some of them do, some of them don't, and the classes are bigger, more intense. We never, like, really pray for you. Some of you, like, deal with clients that are just absolutely horrendous. Some of you, like, work in the service industry, and you've got to deal with us, the general public, who stiff you. We don't give you good tips. We complain because, God forbid, just the foam on our lattes just wasn't right. Life's very challenging, and you guys are all, all of us, if you're a Christian, you're in places where we need God's power. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray for all of us. I'm going to have the guys come on up, and they're going to lead us in a final song. We can partake of communion if you like, and do it as a community group, as a family, uh, as a group of people that just know one another. If you want to do it individually, that's fine too. Um, there's some rugs up in front here if you'd like to just kind of get on your knees and pray before Jesus. We'll have some people available to pray for you. Um, I want to pray for all of us as a church. So what I'd like to do is have all you guys stand. All right, I mean, I realize that maybe some of you here today, you're not Christians. Glad you guys are here. Um, I'm believing that the majority of you guys are here today, you're Christians. I want to pray for you that God would help you to figure out what it looks like for you to live on mission in the context, in the culture where God has called you. By the power of the Spirit that God has given to you that's already resident and at work inside you. In fact, it's so unbelievable 
that it's the power, the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. That's power, by the way. Is at work in every one of you right now. To help you. To remove your cowardice. To replace it with power. To remove the lies that you've believed. Of insignificance. The lies of I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give. To remove those lies. To replace it with truth. I want to pray for you guys. And as we sing, and if you're here, you got kids, and you maybe need to go pick up your kids, don't leave them in the back too long. I think I went a little bit late, so don't leave them back there too long. In fact, you can bring them in here and sing with them as well. I'm going to pray for you, that God would enable you and strengthen you. If any of you here today, there's any other things going on in your life you just need more prayer for, we have a prayer team, people that would love to hang out and pray with you. If there's certain, certain circumstances that you're really wrestling with how to be a witness, how to live on mission in the context where you're placed because it's very challenging, uh, that's, why we, well, that's why we have people here to pray for you. Not just pray for you, but also you know, help you, give you wisdom, lead you to Jesus, maybe direct you in God's word. I'm going to pray for you guys right now. Let's sing, partake of communion. Some of us might need to repent. Some of us might have been experiencing and enjoying redemption for a long time. But the thought of ever joining God on a mission has been not only foreign to us, but actually maybe even frightening to us. And we've resisted it. And we've looked to a more specialized group of people within the church and we've just put all our hope in them please hear what I'm saying that's something to repent from it's the heart of God to use you to use you as an insignificant as weak as you feel that's the beauty of the gospel God chooses weak things to confound those that are strong. God chooses foolish things to confound those that are full of wisdom and arrogance. Because then God gets the glory. You get the joy. And through you, the world gets the blessing. God blesses you to be a blessing. God, right now we ask that you would just help us to examine our hearts and consider the areas where we're at. Maybe for some of us it is to repent to confess sin, to confess our disbelief in your power. Really, God, fundamentally, the issue for us is that we just do not believe your power is great enough to help us to do this. God, for some of us, it might just be we're too cynical, but we thank you, Jesus, that the power that raised you from the dead is the power that's at work in us, and that power has the ability to melt our cynicism into red hot love and affection for you we ask you Jesus that you would do that that you would show us very clearly that you are the missionary God that came to seek and save us who were lost in our sin lost in our darkness and the way that you did that was that you took on our darkness so that we in our darkness could be brought to light thank you Jesus for what you did for us We want to sing to you. We want to worship you. We want to confess our sin to you. We want to tell you that we love you.